events this last month stretch the human heart way beyond breaking point. Perhaps for you like me, it most often feels altogether impossible to put into words how I feel with all that has occurred, to put into words how sad it is to perceive what human beings can do to one another, how we treat each other, and how as a species, how indifferent we can be to the preciousness, the blessing and the privilege of human life. For me, often poetry can hold the magnitude of this pain far more poignantly and far more evocatively than mere words can do. Rabindranath Tagore was an Indian activist, poet, a contemporary of Gandhi, a great musician. He received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1913 and shortly before his death in 1941 during the Second World War he wrote this which seems so alive still today he says all the black evils in the world have overflowed their banks yet oarsmen take your places with the blessing of sorrow in your souls. Whom do you blame, brothers and sisters? Bow your heads down. The sin has been yours and ours. The heat growing in the heart of God for ages, the cowardice of the weak, the arrogance of the strong, the greed of fat prosperity, the rancor of the wrong, the pride of the race, and insult to men, all have burst God's peace and today are raging into storm. We have all been shaken so deeply by the state of affairs of this last month. We are human beings, if I may speak collectively, I think who pray and hope and wish and dream for the possibility of living in harmony with one another. We pray that loving kindness will one day course the corridors of the human heart without exception. We yearn so much for a world that is fathomable, a world that is manageable, a world that is comfortable. The headlines this morning are, a nation lives on edge. We don't want to live with that kind of energy around us all the time. We certainly don't want to see images of airplanes crashing into buildings. And we don't want to see women and children and men fleeing from collapsing structures, whether those structures are in New York, the Pentagon, or Afghanistan. We certainly don't want to see hundreds and hundreds of people struggling to rescue the victims die in the middle of their efforts. And we don't want to have to even try and make sense of all this senselessness. It is so much for the human heart to hold. And we're also fallible. At times, as a species, we join the collective in our thirst for enemies to identify someone somewhere whom we can blame, who we can attack, who we can eradicate, anything but self-acknowledgement.
the tension of retaliation and revenge seems to be palpable in the air, in the ether around us these days. And it feels like with every bomb and with every word of hatred, the chasm is widening between us and them. And in this ever-widening gorge that separates us, there are such whirlwinds of self-righteous indignation, arrogance, fires of wrath and revenge. And it seems like most importantly there is this deep dark confusion that is so dangerous and that could catapult us and destroy our world more thoroughly than the events that precipitated this nightmare. It is all so much. And today what a blessing it is to come together in this context of silence when it feels like we've been buffeted from every direction by the most heartbreaking words and hyperbole and all the images that break the heart again and again and again. And it feels important in this day of candor, in this day of truth, to just acknowledge for a moment that the drums of war and retaliation have been beating in the corridors of power long before American Airlines Flight 77 plowed into the Pentagon four weeks ago. It's all so much to take in. And of course we are outraged. We join our friends, we join a nation, we join a world that is angry, consumed at times with such fury, grief and shock. And at the same time, there are those dreadful landscapes of feeling dumbfounded, paralyzed, helpless and powerless, perhaps even as much as a victim of this circumstance than those unfortunate women, men and children who lost their lives in that towering inferno. But it feels important as human beings who aspire to the truth to acknowledge and to be candid that even though this latest outrage is so vivid and so personal and so audacious that this has been going on for a long time. This is not new. This week in giving thought to the retreat I was just going backwards through the centuries of violence, religious violence and other violence and I kind of stopped at the time of Christ and was just reflecting on those weeks after he was born. This is uh, what Matthew says, when Herod realized that the visitors from the east, which is Joseph and Mary, had tricked him, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all of the young boys in Bethlehem and its neighborhood who were two years old and younger. And in this way, what the prophet had said came true. A sound is heard in Rama, the sound of bitter weeping. Rachel is crying for her children. She refuses to be comforted for they are dead. And even as we sit here today in this beautiful place with the leaves dripping water, personally it feels really important to acknowledge, and this is very close to my heart on many levels, that in Africa, as we are here breathing and relatively healthy together, millions upon millions of children and infants, women and men are dying of AIDS. Whole villages are lost to our world. They're gone with their traditions and their richness. And they are denied affordable and accessible drugs that we in the West have access to. 
what a terrible violence that is. And we live in a century where 20 million people have died in the service of the dream and the ideology of communism that now manifestly begins to disintegrate all around us. It is so much to bear and yet somehow as human beings I believe we are entrusted with the responsibility to find a way to hold the magnitude of this pain. And I feel that is why we're together and what a blessing it is to be reminded that we're not alone. Hafiz, the great Sufi poet, who those of you who know me know that I'm a great lover of Hafiz, the Sufi poet of the 15th century. This is what he wrote then in Persia, uh, a country where I lived for a long time, right next to Afghanistan. He says, why all this talk of the beloved? Why all this music and this dancing and this liquid ruby light we can lift up in a cup? Because, he says, it is low tide, a very low tide in this age and around most hearts. We are exquisite coral reefs, dying when exposed to strange elements. Love is the wine, is the ocean that we crave, that we miss flowing in and out of our veins. Love is the ocean that we miss flowing in and out of our veins. Why all this talk of the beloved? Why all this talk of music and dancing and of liquid ruby light we can lift up in a cup? Because it is low tide, a very low tide in this age and around most hearts. We are exquisite coral reefs dying when exposed to strange elements. Love is the wine, the ocean that we crave, that we miss, flowing in and out of our pores. What is this ocean that Hafiz talks about? For me, it seems so much about the essence of what meditation practice is about, about what Jesus called living in the world, but not of the world. And living of the world is so commonplace on our planet these days. It's living in the cycles of what the Buddhist texts call the eight worldly winds, being buffeted around by the forces of praise and blame, of pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, fame and shame. It's just inclining in each of these directions when those particular winds blow. Being of the world also seems to be about living with this thirst, this almost instinctual thirst that we as a species have to create enemies, that we live in a kind of knee-jerk way in response to life, being a part of the herd and being a part of that culture of avoidance, of disconnection, of denial of what is true, this culture of irresponsibility living of the world. And the alternative, I feel, is the way of meditation, living in the world where 
we endeavor as best we can, as we've already perhaps experienced today, living in a more wakeful, a more continually mindful way, where we are more present with the miracle of life and less blown around by these winds of praise and blame and pleasure and pain and gain and loss, fame and shame. That we are alive, that we are spontaneous, that we live from a place of centeredness. What a beautiful thing to live a life where we're not as programmed, as wired, as conditioned by the past, by the collective, uh, shoulds and shouldn'ts that swirl around us and within us, where we are not defined by these so-called authorities, the authority of, of uh, our society, of the politicians, of our parents, that we have the courage to march to a different drummer and to uh, travel what has been called the road less traveled. To live a life where there is a still point, no matter what the worlds are, the winds are that are circulating around us. To develop the capacity, as we've done today, to step back from, from life and be reflective, be inward, be, be quieter. To look within, to be uncomfortable. This has been a very uncomfortable month for all of us, and to develop the capacity to be uncomfortable and to inquire why is it that this is so uncomfortable, rather than to react in some sort of knee-jerk way, and to acknowledge what it is that we find and then accept what it is that is there. This is the way of great courage to forgive what it is. And then to look out, then to respond to whatever we find and not react. And so our life is lived from a place of stillness, of self-acknowledgement, from inner candor, where we don't react, but we respond. This is the way of the Buddhas, it's the way of Christ, it's the way of Tagore, whose poem I read at the beginning. It's the way of love, it's the way of Muhammad, when when uh, he received the Qur'an, one of the most central teachings of the Qur'an is that if you harm another person, you are harming all humanity. If you're harming another person, you're harming all humanity. One of the most central teachings of Islam. And it feels like at the heart of this capacity to live a more centered, more present life with what is, is the development of these qualities of acceptance and surrender. And I'd like to focus on acceptance and surrender for a few moments, if, if, if we may, because I feel this is the heart of what it means to develop the capacity to forgive, to, to live a forgiving life. For most of us, surrender has negative connotations. We feel that if we surrender, it implies a kind of defeat. It implies a kind of a docility, a sort of wishy-washy response to life, a, a, a passivity, that we're not responding to life, we're not taking responsibility. But I feel that surrender is something altogether different. Surrender is, I feel, the most courageous response to life. When we surrender, we yield rather than oppose what it is that presents itself moment to moment in our lives. Not to surrender is not to accept the present moment. And I feel that that gap between what is presenting itself and our non-acceptance of it is one of enormous violence. It's a gap that is filled with our agendas, our expectations, our notions of how things should be. And it's a gap that really hurts and creates so much pain, both for those and around us. And the surrender is an inner phenomenon. Something difficult happens. It's really an inner response. 
it doesn't mean that we don't then do something outwardly, that we don't respond outwardly, but our initial impulse to accept, to surrender, feels so trustworthy and so imperative in developing this capacity to bring ourselves ever more deeply into the present moment and ever more deeply into the heart and into the center of what it means to live a true and authentic and loving human life. Not to surrender is a resistance. And that resistance is felt in so many different levels. It's certainly felt in our body when, when we resist what it is that has arisen. Our body is tight, it is contracted, it's brittle, and the energy doesn't flow, and all manner of reverberations and repercussions happen from that. And when we don't accept, when we don't surrender, the feeling tone, at least in my mind, is one of brittleness, of tightness, of fighting what is. It's a really uncomfortable place. It's what the Buddha called dukkha, suffering. It's not that that awful things don't happen, but our relationship with what it is that arises is what creates the suffering. And so developing this capacity to accept, to surrender, and then to live a life that is in response to that surrender feels so trustworthy. I don't know if any of you saw that wonderful series on public television with Joseph Campbell and the power of myth, I think it was. There was this one moment, and I sort of played it back and forth and wrote it down, and he's with this man, uh, Sri Krishna Vanan, whose <coughs> mystical name is Atmananda, and they were in a place called Travandrum. And Joseph Campbell goes to this enlightened teacher and says to him, since in Hindu thinking all the universe is divine, is a manifestation of divinity itself, how can we say no to anything in the world? To brutality, to stupidity, to vulgarity, to thoughtlessness. And this old man turned to him and said to him, for you and me, we must say yes. We must say yes to brutality, to stupidity, to vulgarity, to thoughtlessness. And so when something really awful happens, like the World Trade Center towers collapsing, what does it mean to say yes to that? To accept? For me what it means is that until there is within me the capacity to acknowledge that we as human beings, as a species, have got to this point where we can fly airplanes wantonly into buildings and kill thousands and thousands of innocent people until I accept that this is where we are, this is the status quo, my response to what has happened is untrustworthy. This is really difficult stuff, but it feels like um, terribly important to really feel all the reverberations of what has happened and is happening, and to be able to rest in the uncomfortable landscape that is there in the wake of all that is going on, and then to respond once we have felt it, acknowledged it, accepted. Because if we don't accept it, we're fighting it, and it's not going to change what happened. But if we don't accept it, we're in reaction, we're in the knee-jerk, we're in the herd, we're creating enemies, and we're keeping the cycle turning. Developing the capacity to accept even this. And that is, I feel, for me personally, the essence of why we are here today. To develop the capacity to acknowledge our broken hearts, together and to just rest in that and out of that I believe will come the most trustworthy response. 
And this capacity to surrender is not to say, I can't be bothered. It's not to say, I don't care, that there's a kind of inertia. I believe it's something exactly the opposite. It is so courageous and so powerful to open one's heart and mind to what has happened and to say, yes, this is where we are. Now we have to deal with the facts. There, I'm a student of Tai Chi, and there's in Tai Chi this, this uh, wonderful state which is called Wu Wei. And Wu Wei is called actionless action, or sitting quietly doing nothing. And it's considered the highest state of mind. And it's, it's very active. But it's this capacity to be in the world, but not of the world. To be in the world with all of these energies of praise and blame and hate and love and fame and, and all of that swirling around. And to be centered, present, total, alive, responsive, and not reactive. It is so powerful. And for me, this is so much the center, the heartbeat of meditation practice, which in its essence, and perhaps you've had a sense of that today, for those of you who are new to the practice, is that meditation in essence is about going beyond the past and the future, beyond all our conditioning, all that's happened, and to somehow begin to recalibrate the mind so that we can live moment to moment to moment undefined by what has happened before. If you were to look at it as a time continuum, that there's the past, the past, the past, the past, then there's the present moment, then there's the future, the future, the future. We as a species are so fixated on the past and so anxious about the future, which is where all of our thinking is. We either thinking about what's happened or worried about what's going to happen, we deny ourselves the privilege of populating that one juncture in the time continuum where the very thing that we all yearn for is possible. We remove ourselves from that. And so can we, in meditation, bring ourselves to that razor's edge where we're living in the present moment, not in the past, not in the future, where every transformation is possible, where that peace that passes all understanding is a very real and pregnant and succulent possibility. That is what the meditation practice is about. And until then, until we are there, freedom of choice is impossible for us. We think we have choices, but when we are defined by the past and when we are fixated on the future, we really don't have a choice. Our mind is in control and we are out of the very juncture where freedom is a possibility. Until we become present, until we become conscious, until we develop the capacity to surrender and accept what is, freedom is really not possible. We are not responding from a place that is trustworthy and our life is not, I feel, authentic. It is not real, it is not true. It is reactive and therefore part of the problem. You know, three years ago I became an American citizen, so I can speak inclusively, including myself now. You know, it's said that we live in the land of the free and we're the home of the brave. And I think from an ultimate sense, this is ridiculous. It is just not true. Real freedom, real freedom, spiritual freedom, that peace that passes all understanding, implies that we have a choice. And a choice really only begins when we've developed the capacity to disidentify with the patterns of mind that take us into the past and into the future. These patterns that have kept us in bondage and that has kept us in prison, that have kept us suffering for so long and kept us a part of those forces, those collective forces of retribution and reaction. 
and that we see playing themselves out on a global scale as we sit here now together. It is such a call to self-responsibility. On my first meditation retreat in South Africa 20 years ago, uh, my, the man who was to become my teacher, Joseph Goldstein, read these words of the Buddha, and when I heard them, I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that, uh, that um, I'd found a way that felt just so trustworthy. The Buddha said, believe nothing merely because you've been told it, or because it is traditional, or because you yourself imagined it. Don't believe what your teacher tells you merely out of respect for your teacher, but by whatever way, through thorough examination, you find to be one leading to good and happiness for all creatures. That path follow like the moon follows the path of the star. I often think about the last days of Christ's life where you know he was betrayed by Peter and abandoned by Judas and you know whipped and beaten incarcerated had to drag his cross humiliated in the indignity of it and then crucified between two criminals and his final words were, you know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And increasingly I have the sense that what he's saying is forgive them, because these people are not present. They are not conscious. They are defined by forces in their mind, collective forces of unconsciousness. They cannot ultimately be responsible for their actions. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in a different way, the Buddha said the same thing in what I think is his central teaching on love in the Dhammapada, where in the first chapter of that book, he says, um, he says, look how, look how he abused me, how he beat me, how he threw me down, how he robbed me. Love with such thoughts and you live in hate. Look how he abused me and beat me, how he threw me down and robbed me, abandoned such thoughts, and live in love. And then he said, in this world, hatred never yet dispelled hatred. Only love dispels hate. This is the law, ancient and inexhaustible. was my great privilege earlier this year to spend some time with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And he was asked, you know, this was at the time of the execution of Timothy McVeigh, and he was asked, how, how should we, how can we forgive him? How can we forgive McVeigh for what he did? And the Dalai Lama said, we as a species must learn to forgive. But he said, we must never forget. And he said, if somebody behaves in a way that's inappropriate, they may need to be contained. They may need something, some sort of justice may, may be necessary for their own good, for the good of the society. But we must forgive. Until we forgive, we are locked in a cycle of violence that will just keep turning. Just keep turning. As some of you know, I was born and grew up in South Africa. And as I, in my teens, I got increasingly involved in the anti-apartheid movement. And when I was 24, it was really a good idea for me to get out of there because of my involvement. And I feel that the miracle birthed within the violence and heartbreak of the South African tragedy is perhaps one of the most unique and hopeful junctures in the bloody history of our suffering world. And I think one, if you will bear with me for the next minutes, I'd like to just speak a little about it because it feels terribly relevant to the situation that we find ourselves in today. 
11 years ago within the swirling forces of suspicion and violence, negotiation, recrimination, hope and despair, women and men from every facet of the political and spiritual spectrum sat down together for the first time ever, black folk and white folk, people across the rainbow of differences that had kept us apart and torn our country to shreds for so long, all at loggerheads in some way or another since white men arrived on the tip of Africa in 1652. These people now joined hearts and hands together tentatively with much trepidation and much animosity to see if South Africa could find a key to the peace, the dignity, the fairness, and the mutual respect that over 300 years of interracial violence and separation, oppression, and selfishness had made an elusive impossibility for all of us. In the last 40 years of entrenched and legislated racism, had many white folk quite ready to take the freedom of their country and were very reluctant to relinquish their privilege and they were willing to do that through the barrel of a gun. And these same 40 years had other people ready, perhaps able, to take their liberation through violence and bloodshed and blast the beloved country into a vengeful, bitter and violent civil war. And my nation, along with the world 11 years ago, held its breath and prayed and looked on as former enemies edged closer. And tiny accommodations between people turned into extraordinary agreements, promising miracles that many thought never ever would happen. And over those years of wrangling and negotiation, out of those years of willingness to listen to one another for the first time, the bloody foundation stones of apartheid were at last dislodged, and the underpinnings of a system that had murdered uncountable human beings, that had separated people from each other, that had thrown many of us into exile, had elevated some folk above others, restricted the movement of many, and colonized the lands of the native people, all now, 11 years ago, disappeared and disintegrated forever. And this miracle happened with relatively little bloodshed and was far greater dignity than most people ever could have imagined and with a speed that left us all utterly breathless and incredulous. And I feel that we must ask ourselves as sensitive people, as those who are concerned about the planet, questioning people, how was this, how was this possible? How was it that a people in power found that within themselves the capacity to negotiate an end to their privilege? In the history of our world, this has never before happened. We are a selfish species. By and large, we cherish our comfort and our privilege so much. Certainly, many of us here rightly consider us more malleable and, and less self-serving and more inclined to simplicity and fairness and equality than most people. But it seems that deep down in the end, our culture, our nation, our world, is largely a very selfish, hurtful, arrogant, and careless one. And yet at the same time as evidenced by the events in South Africa, given the opportunity, we can be a generous and fair, less violent and more kind species. We are, I believe, all of us capable of unfathomable love and unlimited compassion, even if we can't always manifest these qualities in our life in a moment-to-moment -moment way. And I feel in the end, it is the force, the power, and the strength of our courage to love, our genuine yearning for truth, our willingness to be present, 
and also our capacity to forgive, to surrender, and to, to, to accept that is fundamental to a redirectioning of our life and our world to that brave and new terrain where greater love and harmony, peace and mutual understanding is an ever-present possibility for all of us. In February 1990, Nelson Mandela stepped out of prison after 27 years of incarceration. He walked through the gates of Polesmore Prison in Cape Town, a place I'd seen many times. And watching that moment in Brattleboro, Vermont, I wept uncontrollably because this was the first time I'd seen the man who'd been a hero all my life, the man whose words I'd been prevented from reading, whose face I'd been prevented from seeing. We weren't even allowed to talk about him, let alone associate with the organization that was deemed a terrorist organization that supported him. I'd been barred from from in any sort of association with him. And here he was, he was free. He just, the gates opened and he walked out. And as he stepped back into the escalating violence that he left 27 years before, I thought, how bitter this man must be. He was jailed for all these years. His wife had been harassed and hounded, restricted by the police. He'd not been around to see his children grow up. He'd never fathered them. A lot of his friends were dead, exiled, scattered everywhere. How could he possibly contain all the pain and rage and the grief and the bitterness that must be there? And at this heady time in the juncture of South African history, there were two moments that I feel changed the course of history in Southern Africa forever. And both moments, I believe, embody the essence of what it means to, to live a, a, a courageous and forgiving life. And these unquestionably presaged the rapid events that followed in Southern Africa. The first happened in a place called Rustenburg, which is a dusty, immensely conservative place that I was often scared to visit. It was really intolerant. And in Rustenburg, which is largely an Afrikaner farming community in the Northwest province, clergymen from every denomination, of every color, from across the political uh, and liberal conservative spectrum, from all over the country, gathered together in one place for the first time to discuss reflect upon and pray for the changes that were happening in South Africa. And ministers from the Dutch Reformed Church were there too. Wasn't sure whether they were going to go. And this was the Afrikaans church that had blessed apartheid when it was conceived, that had deemed it conversant with the teachings of Christ. It's the church that for 40 years had unequivocally supported the government's spiritually deified and countenanced oppression, racism, and discrimination in my country. And now, one morning in Rustenburg, in front of thousands and thousands of other religious leaders, these men came forward and fell to their knees and apologized for apartheid and begged for forgiveness. It was an incredible moment. In an instant, the moral imperative behind which so many white folk had taken privileged refuge disappeared forever it was an immensely important moment. And at the same time, Mandela publicly, irrevocably committed himself to peaceful negotiation with the white government that had imprisoned him for 27 years. He forswore violence and pledged himself to reconciliation and dignity asked how he could negotiate with those who had jailed him, killed and uprooted his people, and plunged his country into such violence and suffering. He responded, in the end, we are a forgiving people.
in the end we are a forgiving people. Ultimately, I feel it has been the courage and the strength and the power of forgiveness that has continued, that has and continues to deliver South Africa from the nightmare and madness of its history. Forgiveness. During the course of today, I will offer a forgiveness meditation. To now explore some of the principles of the forgiveness meditation and also share with you some of the lessons I've learned over the years of working with forgiveness. In the unfolding of meditation, the spiritual journey, we must open eventually to every facet of who we are. Like flower buds closed for so long, our petals begin to unravel and reveal a far greater vision and potential for ourselves than we ever dreamt possible. Coming face to the deepening truth of who we are, we undoubtedly discover landscapes of great beauty, wonder, far more lovely than we ever imagined existed within us. In time we must discover the limitless capacity of our great kind hearts to love, to care, to honor, surrender, respect, accept, nurture and celebrate. Probably at times we will find a groundswell of happiness, peace, joy, ease, contentment, and decency way beyond our imagining of what could ever be possible. We are, I believe, after all, in the end, all of us are greater souls than we ever believed we could be. How lovely this is and how vital it is that we acknowledge, celebrate, and remember this loveliness and beauty, this flowering. For undoubtedly, in the course of the journey, we will open also to those tendencies and patterns that can tear our hearts apart. This is in the nature of things. We may discover a capacity to rage and fear attack that flies directly in the face of all the self-images we might carry of ourselves. In meditation with mindfulness and courage, we may hang out with interludes of guilt, jealousy, vindictiveness, and a heartlessness that we'd not ever acknowledged or felt so painfully before. Sometimes I feel that I cannot possibly bear to see a further moment of conflict, violence, and turmoil within myself, no matter how subtle. I'd rather run, hide, escape, exit in any desperate direction and yet, in the end, the added pain of all this avoidance, this denial, this contraction brings me, and if I might speak inclusively us, back to the fiery edge where with mindfulness and care we endeavor once again to be as present, accepting, and patient as possible with the full truth of who we are. And so now again, as thoughtful people, the question we ask ourselves is, where in the end do we find the courage, the resolve, the patience to continue this journey, to take ourselves to the painful edges of self-acknowledgement within ourselves and dwell there in that uncomfortable fire where all our lofty and impossible self-images, pretenses, must crumble in the stark reality of the burgeoning awareness of the fuller truth of who we are. It's my experience that the practice of forgiveness has been crucial and central in bringing my own internal warfare closer and closer to its end once and for all. Along with the practice of awareness that we have done today together, the practice of forgiveness 
has been a part of my journey almost right from the very beginning. I'd like to now just share a few of the lessons I've learned, just practical everyday understandings that have come over the years. And perhaps the most important one is that forgiveness is on no level a condoning of events, things that should never ever have happened. How could we possibly say yes to terrorism, to violence, to war, to the abuse of children? Forgiveness is not a wishy-washy, docile response to these dreadful things that happen in the world. It is an internal phenomenon that is absolutely personal and has nothing to do in the end with the events outside. It's about our relationship with these events and therefore it is not a condoning in any way. It doesn't obviate the need for a uh, appropriate and skillful response. And another lesson I've learned very deeply over the years again and again is that it is an impossibility for me to truly extend forgiveness to another if I am harsh and unforgiving of myself. I can pretend to forgive or to love or care for another but until the power and the force of forgiveness, kindness, mercy, tenderness operates within me, extending to forgiveness must be a contrivance to a degree, no matter how sincere or hard I try. And this has been another humbling lesson along the path. Forgiveness really begins with myself. And when we do the practice later today, we will start directing forgiveness to ourselves. Another lesson that seems so important is about acknowledging and forgiving those parts of ourselves that we've marginalized. It seems clear that any authentic spiritual path must bring us face to face with the parts of ourselves that we have denied or hidden, avoided or ignored. Places perhaps that we have refused to see or acknowledge. In meditation, with awareness over time, we bring the truth of these marginalized places, or be they difficult, into the light of day. For me, the practice of forgiveness over the years has helped me increasingly accept what I have for so long avoided. While for a lot of my life I have looked beyond myself with anger and frustration, a sense of blame, to the murderers, the abusers, the polluters, the manipulators, deceivers, terrorists, hijackers, bombers, and such like of this world, in a desperate effort to deflect attention from myself. And on my knees I've been forced over the years to accept and confess to myself that I indeed am capable of many of the self-same violences within my own heart. And forgiving myself for these possibilities forgiving myself for denying, avoiding, and sidestepping them also. And knowing that with meditation and a commitment to awareness, I am protected always from acting out these patterns and potentialities. I feel now today so much more confident to enter the heartbreaking fire of these parts of myself and to bring forgiveness and acceptance and awareness to places I have loathed and battled and avoided for so long. I really do believe that until I have recognized, acknowledged, accepted, forgiven all I am ashamed of within me, I am unable to move on to the healing, contentment, peace and ease that I believe is the birthright of us all. Self-forgiveness and inner candor feels that important.
Another vital aspect of self-forgiveness I'd like to consider to explore here together today is the capacity and courage we all have to forgive ourselves for the pain we have caused other people. Meditation is a path of purification where we incline increasingly to wholesome energies and activities of body, speech and mind and less towards actions that hurt either ourselves or others. In this way, we increasingly move towards an authentic, honest and loving life, devoid of the greed, anger and confusion that once tore our hearts apart. Most people on the spiritual journey are from time to time haunted by episodes from our lives, our history, when we hurt another person or ourselves by a, a careless thought, an unkind word, a harsh or fear-ridden action. For me, there have been at times interludes in the unfolding of the meditation practice when the pain of history has torn my heart apart. Reliving times past when I've denied and diminished myself, times when I've sacrificed my spirit or my body to the will of another, or treated myself as I'd never treat another person, or treated another person in ways that were perhaps underhanded or misguided, self-serving, hurtful or inconsiderate in some way. The grief the remorse, the sadness of these memories can seem unbearable and certainly tear the heart apart. And yet no matter how blameworthy we may have deemed ourselves, no matter how much pain has been inflicted, no matter how complex the ramifications of our carelessness, in the end are we, am I, willing to nevertheless forgive ourselves, to step out of the nightmare beyond the cycle of guilt and regret, tit for tat, and move on in love with resolve never ever to repeat, if possible, this waywardness again. Or alternatively, do we perpetuate the nightmare in a spiraling paroxysm of guilt, recrimination, self-hatred, inner crucifixion? And the choice in the end is, of course, ours to make. And another lesson I've learned, perhaps a very important one for all of us, is that in the end, the essence of the practice of forgiveness lies in my willingness and intention to forgive. Forgiveness cannot, I believe, be forced or contrived. What I can do, however, in any moment is incline my heart and position my footfalls in the direction of forgiveness. And assuredly, I have faith that forgiveness will blossom, ripen in its own time, whenever and wherever possible. Forgiveness is grace, not a contrivance or something that can be evoked at will. As with the birth of wisdom and authentic love, Letting go and accepting with forgiveness is, in the end, a movement of the heart, not a design of my impatient mind. So I believe that any other facets, any other aspects of the practice of forgiveness will arise in uh, our discussions later today. I would like to end with a piece of writing from Nisargadatta Maharaj, who is now dead. And these words I found on a notice board at a retreat center in England when I was sitting in the early years of my practice. And they moved me profoundly and never left me. And I'd like to end with these words. All you need is already inside you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. 
your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear for yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond.